and uh, I guess get a little older <laughs> to to get to music because we just didn't have much, you know. Uh, we'd call. We had a DJ in at the local radio station. He, he played. He was the night guy on the oldie station, so we would call him and request a song. Like I remember one time re requesting uh, Jimi Hendrix. Uh, fire or something like that. I was like, man, or Voodoo Child or something. He said, okay, you boys get ready. I'm going to play it at me. The intersection of good drinks, good music, and good times. This is Hops and Spirits Bar Conversations. We got a fun episode for you this week as we welcome in Chris Davison of the Davison Brothers Band. They got an album dropping on Friday. Home is where the heart is. You'll have to check that out, just like you'll have to stick around for our conversation. Uh, but before we get into all that, don't forget to check out hopspirits.com where you can check out uh, what's pouring, some happy hour Q&As, and so much more. You don't want to miss anything, hopspirits.com. But up next, it's Tasting Notes as we talk about all those wild finishes in bourbons with Chad Watson. Enjoy. Did you know Hops and Spirits is more than just this podcast? Check out hopspirits.com for our latest episode release, past episodes, interviews with interesting folks in the alcohol industry, and so much more. Just go to hopspirits.com. Feel free to wait until this podcast is done. Welcome back to another Tasting Notes. And part of me just you know wants to say it's Chad Watson. Does he need an introduction? I don't think so. <laughs> Unless no one knows who I am. but Well, yeah, then I'm he's AKA from... My Daily Bourbon. Yeah, that works. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome oh, back, Chad. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Now, you know, we've had some fun chats here recently. Talked about daily drinkers, um, bourbon culture. And I really feel like this puts a bow on this little series of chats here because I think this all comes together. What we talked about with the daily drinkers because people want to have cool things. Maybe the bourbon culture. They want to have cool things, whether it's store picks or, or whatever. But I feel like I'm starting to see the craft beer world come into the bourbon world because we have had some wild finishes and I'm wondering where we're headed. Yeah. So what I've got poured up right now is 15 stars, uh, fine age spirit, triple cask finish. So it's a fine age spirit. It's not spirit. It's, it's, it's a Kentucky bourbon finished in cognac port and rum barrels. So three, um, you don't normally see together. Three, you do not normally see together, but it's damn good. Um, and you know, to Ryan uh, Ryan Cecil from Bourbon Pursuit, which on a product like this, like just seeing it, I can I can hear him saying that you should just drink flavored whiskey because that's, I mean, it's weird. I I don't like flavored whiskey. There's like two of them that I will stomach, but I love the exploratory flavors of these finishes. But the last two things I've poured tonight have all been have both been triple finished, whether it be triple oaked and you know different oak blends together, or triple you know other spirit or wine or spirit finishes. It uh, it's definitely getting a little wild out there. Uh, it sometimes are you're tiptoeing around. Is it still bourbon? Is it still rye? Uh, like do do you like Angel's Envy Rye? Yes. Have you ever noticed it does not say straight rye whiskey finished in rum barrels? No. That's because there's still rum left in the barrel and they blend it. That's where the super mapley molasses profile comes from. Mm -hmm. So they cannot call it straight because there is an additive in there being the rum. So 
Peerless. I learned rum. something today. Yeah. So Peerless, their rum finished bourbon, same thing. Uh, not saying that, and that doesn't mean that there's you know th- this much of every bottle's rum. No, there is there is just an amount of of liquid in those barrels that will react with the whiskey inside. I mean, it, it could be like, you know, just this much at the bottom of the barrel, but they still have to call it, you know, just whiskey because technically by the TTB standards, that is a whiskey specialty. And for those of you who do not know what a whiskey specialty is, that falls in line with the flavored whiskey or additives where you do not have to claim or specify colors, flavors, sweeteners, extra additives or anything of the like on a label because you're filing in, in that form. So something like, like this, this is three barrel finishes. It is a whiskey specialty. They could add color or flavors or sweeteners, but us as consumers are assuming that they are not. So it, it, and you've got brands who are doing unique brandy finishes. I'm not going to name any names because that's not what I'm here to do. Except I do feel like I just kind of shit on Angel's Envy right there for a little bit. But um, I love their rye. I love Angel's Envy. Angel's Envy bourbon's first gift my girlfriend ever got me. So I've got a soft spot for them. I just wanted to throw that out there. Uh, um, excuse me. Uh, but I see what you did there. Got to work. Got to gotta work, work work that in. I like yeah, it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> got to kiss the ass at some point. Um, but there are barrel brokers. I mean, it... Let me backtrack. Let me backpedal a little bit. So, have you ever heard of a term "seasoning a barrel"? Like they, this, a see, someone has seasoned a port barrel. Do you know what that means? No. That means they are taking port wine, they are pouring it into a dry port or just a dry barrel. But you would assume it would be a you know a port barrel, so something of of the same sort to kind of like rejuvenate and kind of hydrate the wood to bring out those flavors. But if you're putting it freshly in there, you're gonna let it sit for a couple of days. You're going to dump out whatever you can. You're going to put the whiskey back in there. So doing that adds a lot of color and a lot of flavor, clearly, because you're reopening those pores, but that that wine is still freshly soaked in there. Now, there are brands or brands or companies, I'm not sure exactly, but you see crazy finishes coming out these days. It's like, you know, like watermelon brandy. Have you ever, like, I'm not saying, like, you can't have a watermelon brandy, but I, I barrel aged watermelon brandy. Not seen too many of those. No, not seen too many of those at all. Uh, I mean, I, so a brandy is just distilled fruit. So, I mean, you know, that's, that's how you get cognac. It is, it is grapes distilled in cognac, France. But, uh, I mean, there's still more, a few more laws, but uh, essentially, um, what companies are doing are, are taking clear spirits, clear brandies. So, you know, sweetened, sugary, could have flavors added to, or just could be flavored in general, and seasoning these barrels to produce a flavor profile. And I think that's where we are going too far in the way of what is a traditional bourbon. Uh, do I think we need to have a finished whiskey, not a finished, like, you know, this is, this is Kentucky straight bourbon finished in. You know, it has to say... And if you look right there, you'll see the fancy lettering finished in those two words are, are, are what are deciding whether or not your label gets approved or denied or a lawsuit later, if it gets overlooked, 
because you're not selling Kentucky Street bourbon anymore. So I feel like we it. I mean, we've we're we're in 2023 now. We, this should already been figured out. But I, from what I hear, it's like eight old ladies in in the bottom of a basement in a government building who are the who are the TTB. So I'm sure things get missed. But I I I do believe we are hitting that curve of too much. Not saying this is too much. This 15 stars is is freaking awesome. I do love this. But you are seeing more and more brands where straight is falling off the label finished, you know, it, it, it would just be rum finished Kentucky bourbon. And it's, it's kind of a misnomer of, hmm. I mean that, that can have flavors, rum flavors or, you know, et cetera. They're, they're skirting the spirit of the law. Maybe pun intended. I don't know. I would say pun intended. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and it's, it's weird for consumers because when I teach whiskey classes at work and someone says, you know, do, do you like Jack Daniels? No, it's not bourbon. It is bourbon. Do you like Angel's Envy? Yes, that's not bourbon. Like that, it, it's such a weird, well, I'm not, I'm not meaning to shit on Angel's Envy. It's just the first thing that comes to mind. Um, barrel, barrel bourbon <laughs> does a lot of finishing. Yeah. I mean, and, and if you, if, you want to be that guy that's like this and and says like, excuse me, it's not actually bourbon, but we know it is because we trust these brands. But I, are are we being too trusting of these brands? We're gonna to have to bring back the bottle and bond act where someone actually sits there and watches what's going on. <laughs> hey, you might have to. Uh, the, the corgi makes another appearance, but it, it's true though because I, I remember you know a couple of years ago seeing what Barrel and a few folks were doing, and it was uh, wild. You're like, oh, this is awesome, and it is. You know, Angels Envy, what they've done with their finishing stuff is awesome. With Barrel, with three different blend, you know, three different whiskeys coming together, it's interesting to blend, and then having finished blends on top of that it, it is wild. But I feel like now we're getting to that point of really is is this still <laughs> what it was once before and that's where i wonder like that craft beer world of it's an ipa with pink guava and this and this and this and this and this in it and are we really in beer or is this just a sugary drink uh, and i mean uh and, and not to go into a completely different category of alcohol but look at rheingeist and and now with their i mean have you noticed all their fruit beers are now just a fruit flavor what does it say on the side like a oh it's like a malt something or other yeah but i mean it is a beer because it's it's just like an ale or a lager that they've added fruit to but they don't want to specify anything because if you say it's like urban artifact if urban artifact was like we you know we make uh ales and but we add raspberries and blackberries and vanilla to it and blueberries and all this stuff someone would say well, how much of that is fruit? So the beer world has kind of kind of figured that out. Uh, and, and I mean, I, I guess to go further into it, like 450 North, like do you ever remember their controversy happened mm -hmm. whenever they, you know, they were putting ABV on cans and it wasn't hitting remotely close to that. And then they were having issues because there was so much fruit in there. Not that it wasn't containing alcohol, but it wasn't containing like the 12% of alcohol they said it did. It was containing like four. You know, you're you're in that realm of this is just a fruit beer. You know, it's almost borderline lambic, uh, but is it even a you know is it a beer? 
at the, at this point because there's so much fruit in it. What is your base? You're getting all your alcohol content from from fermented fruit. So it it really does do, does come from. And I hate to throw names out there. I hate when I do that. I feel bad. But uh, shame, shame. I know. I, I don't. I don't. I'm not like. We love know. all those brands. I do love all those brands. I, I I do love all these brands, but it's just. I mean, this th- these are facts. Things have happened. Mm-hmm. So it's not like we can't deny that. Um. But I do wonder when we as a as a as a whiskey community are going to learn when, when that's going to come back around and, and us say, yeah, we should have known better on that brand or we should have asked more questions on that brand because it, it's, it's kind of like um, back when people wouldn't tell you where they were getting it. And all of a sudden a new brand came on with an eight year, whatever. And there was some yeah. controversy with a few of those back in the day. I'm, I won't throw out names on, on that one because it's it's kind of a, long ago that it's you know the statute of limitations are are gone so to speak. But you got to start to wonder: Will that happen again? Where we get kind of annoyed when we realize what they've really done? Yeah, I mean, and, and it's a perfect example because in the United States government, the alcohol beverage control, like all everything alcohol based produced by so if if you create something and i buy it from you but i i do anything different like you know if if i blend it or re, if i do anything that's different that you would do and i bottle it i can say it's produced by me i don't have to say where it's distilled or what it is i can just say this is bourbon produced by me now what you're talking about, I assume, is the brand who was, you know, created by still, and they were putting all the info on there, as if they did it, and they did not do it. Which now their products say produced by and bottled by. Still didn't say where it's distilled, but um, it it is a weird realm because vodka, a, a distilled spirit in the United States, if you take something from uh, like MGP, like a, a gin or well, okay. So like a neutral grain spirit from MGP and you want to make a gin, but you are in a state that's not known for gin, but you're like, I want to make my gin famous. You could just distill that neutral grain and then add your whatever to it, all your botanicals. And you've just distilled your own gin. You didn't actually distill anything because all you did was just take their stuff and redistill it. And that's what actually what a lot of vodka producers do. But, you know, we hear all these things about, you know, like this vodka from Idaho or this vodka from Missouri or this vodka from Texas. You know, one of the biggest vodkas in the U.S. market is not made in Texas. It's redistilled in Texas, but because it's distilled there and it's, it, it's, a, it's a gray area, they can claim it's six times distilled in Texas. So I, I, I think that the bourbon market is, is right now working within those gray areas of that sort, not to that capacity. Some are, but a majority aren't. But I think that we might be overstepping the bounds of legality because if, and I love finished whiskeys, I do, but I make, I always clarify finished whiskeys because that's what they are. But I, I think we're getting to the point now where so many brands are doing it. And I was just talking to like to Ricky at 15 stars and you know, they've got a, they've got a 10 and a 13 year old, um, Sherry finish coming out. I'm like, I'm super excited for that. Love Sherry finishes, but some brands you see, like this is a good color. You know, this is 16 and 8-year-old bourbon. But if you see, I don't know if you can hold that up. Mm-hmm. But if you see a bourbon that is like super, like ruby red, and it says finished in port barrels, 
it should not be ruby red. It should have a slight red hue to it, but it should not look like the wine that it was finished in. You know, that it's dark rye from Basil Hayden. That is a rye whiskey, and it says liquid finished, so blended with the wine, but that was after an experiment where they finished in wine barrels and it didn't have quite the effect. So it, it's weird, weird category, and I, I don't know where my main point was going, but I... I'm basically just saying, like, we're 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 skirting the line. I was gonna say it sounds like there will be a part two of this down the road as more and more come on the market because it is a very interesting topic. So many are coming on with finishes, and how they're finishing it too is different. Uh, whether they're taking the staves and putting it in something else or whatever, and that's a, I feel like a whole another topic. And oh yeah, like interstave and cubes and you know bro- like. Whole, I didn't even think about that, gosh. I'm, I'm glad you, you know. So, <laughs> you know, so it is wild, and I, and I'm curious to see where it goes. And and this is why I always enjoy talking with you too, Chad, because you gave me a little knowledge there at the beginning, and now I learned something today, and that's what I always like to do. Yeah, I mean, it's if I can do anything in any time we record, it's usually nine times out of ten I just rant. But if I can do something at least one of those ten times, it's teach you something. And you did, and I appreciate it. <laughs> Check out Hops and Spirits on social media at Hops Spirits, all one word, on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Twitter. You can also find Hops and Spirits on YouTube and at HopSpirits.com. Joining us here for our conversation, he's part of a bigger group known as the Davison Brothers Band, and they have a new album dropping on the 28th this Friday. Uh, the album is Home is Where the Heart Is, and they've got some other news, too, that we'll get into. But welcome in, Chris Davison. Thanks for having me. Well, I, I appreciate you taking the time and, and, and hopping on here. Now, I know you, I don't think you're going to be doing too much of this tonight. It is called Bar Conversations, so every now and then we have a drink. But I hear you got to get up early in the morning, so you, you might be behaving yourself. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll have a, a sip or two. <laughs> so i decided to you know a little something that i always enjoy is a little dickle but this one's their bottle and bond um what, what's your go-to or, or what is something you enjoy that is crazy that you just pulled that bottle up that's been our family drink since we for generate well, as long as i remember that's that's the the drink of choice on our family farm that's uh my uncle uh pete he he is just that we bring him memorabilia and little signs from all over the world with Dickel. Anywhere we find something, we we drag it back to the farm. He puts it all in the cabin up and puts it, hangs it and stuff. So that's that's pretty wild. But I'm a George Dickel guy too, and uh, I don't know. We just we grew up drinking. I was one of them guys just drank everything, anything somebody had. And we we wasn't picky drinkers, but if, if I'm out in a bar or something, I, I drink. I like a little tequila, so I'll drink some Patron. And our manager's uh, got a, a line of tequila in, in his bars that uh, it's called uh, Cody Cody Go. Yeah, it, uh, we drink, but tequila and I like a, a light beer. I'm a light beer kind of guy. So I was gonna say those are, are all good choices. Now on the tequila, are you kind of going blanco, or are you getting the aged stuff and getting fancy with like the añejos and things like that? I just a uh, clear tequila, you know, anything that's clear and uh, good. <laughs> yeah, I like it. I don't like, I used to drink the, uh, the hard stuff, the worm in it and stuff when I was younger, but I think them days are over. 
<laughs> well, you you got to behave. You you got you got early mornings, things like that. It, it's a little little more difficult now. You you mentioned the bringing it back to the family farm, putting things up in the cabin. And for those that don't know, that is in West Virginia, right? Yes. Yep. Uh, we call it Big Rock Camp, West Virginia. My family uh, founded the town we live in in the county uh, back in the 1700s. Uh, so we've still got one of the last pieces of the property has been uh, been kicked around. And we finally got it back in the family in the 40s. My whole family, the Davison family's buried there. So I think we date back to the 1700s on some of them headstones out, out there, but uh, Major Daniel Davison, he he founded uh, Harrison County, Virginia at the time for his uh, war heroism and the uh, Revolutionary War. They awarded him and his uh, siblings 400 acres. So they wagoned down and uh, built forts and kind of developed uh, the, the what is now current day uh, Harrison County, West Virginia, which is Clarksburg, West Virginia. So we've been around a long time and we come from a long line of mountain fiddlers, and so we're several generation musicians. And my grandfather was the first one to go from the fiddle to the guitar. So, so so music's always been in in your family's life, then. Always, that's that's all we've ever known. That's that's all we've did. We, my brother and I, have been making a living. He started at four years old, and I started at eleven. Our dad. He's still, our dad's still out doing 150, 200 shows a year at 70 years old. So, and I've got nephews behind me that four nephews that are writing and recording their own music. So there's seven of us out on the road at all times. My mom has to keep up with. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I mean, you know, I, I guess it, it was in the blood, but you know, if you waited till 11, were, were you just a, a slow, slow uh, mover to it? What, what happened there? Well, we, uh, we played a lot of sports growing up and we did a lot of hunting and fishing and spent a lot of time in the woods and on the farm and hay season. And my brother, Donnie, he'd go out with my dad and, uh, do a lot as a kid. He, he was kind of, uh, he'd go to the radio stations and perform. And I remember as far back as him doing Alvira on one of the radio stations, one of the DJs is still a friend of the family. He comes up and, shows his pictures of that. I think he was four when when that song come out and he, he did a thing on the radio. Then uh, we started touring around a couple county area at uh, just kids. We was still in grade school and junior high. Then we started doing about four to five nights a week. I think when I was like in the eighth grade, we had a steady job at one of the hotels in the area. Then we had another, that was on a Monday. Then we had another steady job at a hot dog and beer joint on a Wednesday and then we'd go find work on the weekends. We'd play fairs and festivals and churches, uh just everything you can imagine. We we played and we've been a we've been doing it a long time, so Well I'm guessing you had a few stories for, from the the haulers uh uh there. I, I know where where my family grew up. I, my mom was from Elkins, my dad was from Summersville was the closest town. He, wow. he didn't grow up in Summersville. He grew up uh, out in the woods in Tioga. Uh, wow. So, so you know, I'm guessing you had some good stories and some good uh, lessons learned along the way. For sure, yeah. And I know Alkins well. That's kind of our second home. We've got a uh, camp up there on a on the trout stream right there in Bowden, West Virginia. And we uh, we go up to Gandy and 
we did, you know, we we do tent camping on Gandhi, take vans up there. It's still, you know, it's not been any. There's no 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 power source from the time you start on that gravel road, Claire to Spruce Knob. So that's a little more hardcore camping for us, and it's harder. It gets harder and harder to do. The more, you know, the more successful the band gets, it's hard to carve out a week and go up there. But we still make time. We uh we spend you know, just about all our off time, especially in the springtime up trout fishing ramp. It's ramp season. I don't know if anybody knows what ramps are, but it's kind of like a wild cross between a garlic and an onion. The old natives, I uh, believed, you know, it was a spring cleaning. So we go after them and we'll, uh, morales are about to pop up the morale mushrooms and it's turkey season. So it always seems like Nashville's always got us out of the whole year they 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 somehow figure a way to have us doing extra stuff during april and uh may than in the fall during uh our fall hunting season there's there's always extra stuff going on but maybe one day we'll get that figured out <laughs> maybe just turn it a little a little bit more winter and summer <laughs> a little <Yeah>. more winter <laughs> Now, you know, I know the great outdoors are, are, are where you love to be, but when it comes to like a love of music, what, what music did you grow up on and maybe had a big impact on y'all? Yeah, that's a, you know, that's a, a big question. Uh, mostly, mainly what we grew up on was our family. Just everything we did with our family. My uncle, uh, he still lives on our family farm and he wrote a lot of music, still does, but he never leaves the farm. He's never left our farm. So we go out there and your cell phones don't work. You know, we've never had much uh, phone service out there. But I remember back in the day, they had a party line where, you know, all the neighbors were on the same phone line. So you'd have to wait around on the phone, which was a, was a cool thing to us growing up. But we always, uh, we'd work, you know, out out in the gardens we'd put big gardens in out there then it was hay season but we always gathered around in the evenings and uh played and sang music and uh we didn't have we never had the luxury of having a lot of cds and stuff growing up we we had an old record player then and uh so most of our music come from my dad and my uncle then we had a, a coal mine that was up the same holler where we where we grew up on that farm out there then those coal miners would would come out from the city and uh they would on their lunch break they'd come out from underground and they'd they'd bring their banjos and their mandolins and fiddles and they'd have these little picking sessions well that music we had a neighbor he was an old man he played banjo so he'd get a lot of that music off those coal miners then uh my uncles would go over and sit with the old man and learn a lot of that music and we still do some of these songs in our set. And people ask, where did you get that verse from in that old song? You know, like we have no idea, you know, it's been handed down so many times to us. But then uh, I guess getting a little older <laughs> to to get to music, because we just didn't have much, you know. Uh, we'd call, we had a DJ in at the local radio station. He, he, he played, he was the night guy on the oldie station. So we would call him and request a song like i remember one time re- requesting uh jimmy hendrix uh fire or something like that i was like man or voodoo child or something 
he'd say, okay, you boys get ready. I'm going to play it at midnight on the nose. So we'd sat around that, that radio and we'd have one chance to learn that song when he played that. So we'd be ready with our guitars. But as we got older, you know, uh, one of our neighbors was into Leonard Skinner a lot. And I think we wore out some of them old records and CDs. And I was a big fan of Alan Collins and Gary Rosington and uh, Ed King and Steve Gaines, guitar players. And I got into a lot of Dickie Betts with the Almond Brothers. And then it was Willie Nelson. We got into some, my brother and my dad. My dad was a big Willie fan. And, and we'd always listen to country radio. You know, every everywhere we went, there was country radio on. And my brother was a huge 90s country music fan. You know, he, he thought he was Garth Brooks there for a minute, I think. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> Now nah, we we fortunate we were surrounded by good music. Then we started writing at an early age. We started doing these bluegrass and jam band festivals right out of high school. I remember like seventeen, eighteen. You know, we was meeting guys like Warren Haynes and uh, Derek Trucks when we was just young. And Derek was just a kid. And we started doing a lot of these events. And we run into the band called Leftover Salmon, which a good friend of ours to this day, Vince Herman, was the leader of the band. And he kind of took us under his wing and showed us all that, you know, that underground bluegrass stuff. And we did that for years. And then we ended up getting with some Nashville guys. And, you know, we'd always had this dream of being on country radio. And, you know, that was a big deal to us. We was big fans of Ricky Skaggs. You know how he crossed over the bluegrass into the, country music and, and the guys were our heroes so we ended up signing a record deal in nashville and uh did the the country music thing and had some success on country radio then this last record you know i'd actually called the dale mccurry band and i was like man i'm i'm trying to make a record that just takes us back to our roots a little bit and shows the appalachia thing and still has a good modern edge to it so we did a bunch of writing over COVID and we, we wrote 50 some songs for this record and end up, uh, the McCurry's said, won't you call, uh, David Ferguson. They call him Fergie. He's kind of lives in all kinds of worlds. He, he was kind of Johnny Cash's guy. I think he recorded Johnny Cash over 60 sometimes and Waylon Jennings. And, you know, he just did a lot of, he did the Rick Rubin, Johnny Cash sessions out in LA. And so he had that, this little edge to him and, He's recently done Tyler Childers. You know, he, he, he kind of made that first record, him and Sturgill. And then he's recorded Sturgill Sampson and Margo Price. So he kind of, you know, he's he's not down the middle uh, country and kind of right what we was after this record. And then I asked him if he agreed to do it immediately. Then I asked him if I'm, he minded us bringing our good friend Brent Cobb, which is a singer-songwriter guy, in to co-produce. And he was all about that, so... So uh, we're influenced by a lot of a lot of music and a lot a lot of wide variety of music. So, well, and, and I think this is kind of the upbringing. I know where, you know, when I talking beforehand, you know, I lived in Beckley, and I remember. I mean, I think at one point in time where I was, you could get like eight different country stations, and and and, and everyone was playing something different. So uh, there's there's a lot to to go off of, and I think you. I was going to ask this a little later, but uh, it's the perfect time now is when you were talking about this out al album, didn't you literally take a, a big group of the guys down there and kind of go old school and put them in a circle and let's f figure some things out. Yes. That's exactly what we did. Uh, 
you know, we write a lot on our own going up and down the road. I've write a bunch of songs, you know, my brother sitting in the passenger seat in a sprinter van and me driving and him with a guitar over there. And, you know, that's, we get a lot of road time and we get home. We, we, you know, you got to tend to your family stuff. So we, we make use of that going up and down the road time a lot. And we've been doing a lot of that writing on our own and, you know, and we're always trying to learn and evolve, and so we're always surrounded by just very super talented guys. And and uh, years ago, we was at Dell Fest and playing uh, the Bluegrass Festival, and they was bringing in some jam guys to headline the, the Bluegrass Fest. And it's just amazing group of skilled musicians. These guys are just the best players on on the planet. And uh, Trey from the band Fish had snuck in on our set and was sitting on the side stage. I looked over the first song. He's sitting there watching. Well, he never left till the set was over. He walked behind the stage, and I come off stage soaking wet, sweat, and uh, he grabbed us. And he said, come over here. He's like, what is that music? He's like, I've never heard anything like that. He was trying to put it together with the Appalachia thing, and, you know, we had a drum set at a bluegrass festival, which is, you know, that, that's a little unique to begin with. And he said, man, I would love to come to Nashville and get in some of those writing rooms with the writers that, that write some of this, this country music in Nashville, that that's all they do is write. And he, we exchanged information. And uh, for a couple of years, you know, we was trying to find a hole in each other's schedule where we could both be in Nashville and do this. And he got super busy. We got busy, but it was just always stuck in my head, you know, what if I combine these Nashville brilliant songwriters that just have this craft, that that's all they do, you know, with these, the best players in the world that, you know, that's what they do is they jam at these festivals, and, you know, they, they just, they're the best at what they do. So uh, that had been in my mind for years and years how to make that happen. And when COVID hit, uh, my friend Vince Herman from Leftover Salmon, he pulled his camper here in West Virginia and uh, parked it on at my camp site on the river. And we did some trout fishing and stuff. And I was like, man, I, it just hit me. It's like, what if I take Vince down here and get with some of his jam man buddies and bluegrass buddies and, and get in these writing rooms and see what happens. And it didn't take much. I think I did, it barely got on my mountain benches like, yep, fired the motor home up and, we was heading to Nashville, and so I sat him in a room with a. I called a couple friends. One was Levi Lowry. Uh, Levi's wrote like "Colder Weather" for Zach Brown. But Levi's got a whole uh, family history of mountain fiddlers too, from down south Georgia. And his grandfather was one of the first recorded fiddle players ever in history of music in the twenties. His great grandfather. He had that original fiddle, and uh, I was like, man, I'd be the perfect guy for this. Then I called our friend Rob McCurry from the Dow McCurry Band, the banjo player. And I was like, let's take a different approach to this. Let's, you know, get these instruments out and get this vibe going, make things feel good, then add some lyrics. And I called another friend, Sierra Farrell, which uh, she's a West Virginia girl that's doing really good things right now. Uh and the Americana world and just, she kind of blowing up right now. But so I didn't realize, but when we got in the room, Vince is like, I've never done a co-write before. So I had no <laughs> idea. And Sierra's like, I've never done this before neither. So 
we end up writing like seven songs that day in this studio with all this old gear around us had all a bunch of analog gear and stuff it was just really good vibe and i was like we come out and listen back to some of this stuff i was like we're on to something here you know got the jam band guys and levi with these lyrics and stuff and it just it was kind of magic so we come out there and i, I called my manager like we got to do this again and uh try to get enough songs to make a record like this and so we ended up doing it two or three more times we took the same deal went to south carolina to a lodge and had uh that time i brought four or five monster nashville writers like like white direct which is just you know, one of the most decorated songwriters of our time. I think he wrote the first 11 number one hits for Zach Brown. And uh, he don't play an instrument. Uh, what? He's all off of vocal melodies. And uh, he just hears stuff, you know. He's just one of these guys. You might, you know, be out with him at the bar at 11 o'clock at night. And he's over humming something in your ear like, man, can you hear a guitar part to this? I'm like, yeah, cause it's kind of cool that he don't play an instrument. Then I had uh, Channing Wilson and Rob Snyder and Adam Hood. But Channing and Rob are responsible for some of the biggest songs Luke Combs ever recorded and put out. You know, they're just these guys that just got this special talent with these lyrics and these melodies and then I had Vince Herman come on that and Kyle Tuttle, which is, you know, national banjo champ. And it, uh, you know, we, we took him to South Carolina and I didn't know how it was going to go down. You know, we went over, we had four days planned. We was going to do a little fishing on the ponds and riding the four wheelers and the razors around. And first night we got down there and all got in our little bunks and put all our clothes in there and started drinking a couple beers and, all of a sudden, uh, Vince and Kyle got the banjo and the guitar out in the mandolin, and I watched these writers just circle and swarm around this. And, and one of them's like, man, I've never heard anything like this. I was like, you've never been in a bluegrass circle before? And they're like, no. And I, I was like, I found that amazing to me, you know, as much as they know about music. And then it just started flowing out, you know. It was four days of just nonstop. I don't think we slept two or three hours a night we were so excited just getting up and starting to write and play every day all day and that worked so well i come back to nashville and i put another retreat together i think uh we did it two more times in nashville and had 30 some songs come out of one of those weeks and it, just amazing just an amazing experience and uh you know i get just as much it's it's just as rewarding in those writing rooms as it is playing in front of 20 or 30,000 people when you, you know, you give birth to these songs and you got something at the end of the day, it's there for life, you know, it's, it's just a good experience. And then also they're just a bunch of good people too. So that, that makes things a lot better. Well, and, and, and all this ended up leading to what is, is uh, home is where the heart is that comes out on the, on the 28th. Why did you want to go kind of that Appalachian route way? Because that's definitely different than the first two albums you guys had put out. Well, uh, you know, you get these record deals and stuff, and, you know, you get a producer involved, and, you know, some of these producers are just, you know, there's, they've had so much success in history, and, you know, you kind of listen to a lot of what they have to say when you're recording, and, you know, you kind of we're always trying new things and we're not afraid to go try something following our face you know that 
that's part of I think growing as an artist. You know, you go trial and error. That's how we've done everything. You know, and uh, we got a little rock edge to us. And I, you know, I think the last record, especially Fighter, I, we we kind of intentionally wanted to show that that rock and country edge of us. And you know, that was somewhere new to us. We was going and. You know, it worked on country radio. We had some big successful songs. We had a guy in Australia that uh, he'd found us. He'd, he'd looked through hundreds of acts in, in the United States. He was he was kind of the guy that brought a lot of these 80s Australian acts to the U.S. and, you know, and blew up with these big monster songs. And then uh, he was the guy that brought Keith Urban to the U.S., and kind of the, the mind behind that. Then in his later years in his life, he decided, you know, I've managed and been the, one of the biggest talent buyers and promoters in the world. And he decided he wanted to own a record label and he wanted to do a reverse Keith Urban in Australia. So he, he found us. We never met him or nothing. He was in our producers, Keith Stigall's studio and Keith played him one of our tracks and this, guy signed us on the spot with a sony record deal that he'd partnered with and and uh took one of these songs and he he did something the most unique thing i've ever seen somebody do in the music industry he had had us uh record and uh do a music video to this song i remember it was like the end of october the leaves were just changing here in west virginia we went to alkins to dne college and got the uh, the dance program, the Appalachian dancers, the students to kind of choreograph some dancing and some of our mountain dancing, our our clogging and our you know the flat footing that we do here. And uh, we recorded this video and uh, put this video out, and he'd put it out over in Australia on what it's called CMC. It was at the time. It's their version of CMT, and it's since. Uh, then become CMT of Australia, but he'd put this video out on us and uh, leaked this song before the video a little bit and booked us on a music festival at like the first or second week of March. So this video never really went out till the end of December or something on our airwaves over, and so we've never been to Australia or nothing. And uh, so he played this. They just blew this song up and it be you know it was it was just it was one of the most requested songs in the history of country music in australia and all this but we'd uh we had no idea because we can't see a lot of their media over and we're kind of locked out of some of the stuff over so he just brought us never being to australia never meeting any of our team or anything to a music their biggest music festival in australia it's called cmc rocks so we literally fly in. It was like a 28-hour flight to get there or something. Mm. And we get out the airport, and the uh, TSA and the security's getting pictures with us and asking us for autographs. And we don't even get out of the airport. And some girl comes up and starts doing that flat foot dance in front of us. Like, oh, there's the po' boys. And I'm like, what is going on here? We thought it, they were playing some kind of trick on us or something. But we go to this music festival, and... Uh, there's just, you know, 35, 40,000 people in front of us. And we got a nighttime slot and we've never been to Austria, never met any. This is the same day we flew in. 
And I look at my brother, I'm like, what are we going to do? We don't even know how to talk, you know, to these people or anything. So we come out and we just took one of the riskiest moves we've ever done in our career. I said, start with the single, <laughs> the first song, how the set. And they sang it back to us louder than, you know, we, we couldn't even hear our monitors on stage and, uh, just blew us away that they knew every word of this song. Then did they not only know that song? They we was doing songs from our old records that way down deep in the catalog, you know. And they was singing them back to us. They'd already dug in. Then to top it off, we sang "Country Roads," you know, the John Denver song, and they knew every word. There's a video online if you, you uh, Google it, uh, Davidson Brothers "Country Roads" Australia or something, but. It's amazing. They knew that and sang it louder than they would here in West Virginia. It's mind-blowing. But Anyway, uh, so we did all that and did the country radio thing and had all that success in Australia and had a lot of success here. And It really moved the needle for us, that radio. And uh, But this last record, my brother and I, you know, we're always just trying to evolve and, you know, and outdo ourselves and outdo each other we're always trying to write a, you know was we got we're competitive people especially my brother and i you know trying <laughs> to see who comes up you know with the best song and we uh but this uh this idea just you know part of evolving was you know to us to go back and show where we come from in appalachia and put these you know these these sounds of it's still on, you know, you turn on the radio right now and within five minutes, you'll hear some Appalachian sound on country radio on their top 40 hits are still, you know, the, the banjos and the, the mandolin still drive, you know, Appalachian music still a big part of top 40 pop music today. And you might not realize it, but you know, uh, but a lot of these guys are heroes too. And, you know, it's just that record we've always been wanting to make in our mind. And, uh, you know, a little less, I, I told somebody, it's like little less beer in the air <laughs> and a little more back in the recliner with your headphones on and uh, taking a little ride through Appalachian. I think we accomplished it on this, this record. So I was going to say, you can sit, maybe sit sipping a little whiskey at the bonfire on, on this one. And, and it, it's a, it's a great album. I've gotten to listen to it and it's definitely different. And, uh, was it hard for, I feel, well, I guess my, my next question on it is, is how much fun do you guys have when you're writing lyrics? Cause you, I feel like you were able to tell a lot of stories on, on this one, you know what I mean? Be able to share some stories, uh, through some music. We take so much pride in that. Like I said earlier, it's just as much fun and just as rewarding to us to tell these stories and shine some light on, you know, our heritage and our culture and you know what what happens here in these hills and you know we we still live in west virginia we, we split our time we spent a lot of time in nashville but you know it's it's so hard to me to you know to live in a city and be down you know i think the most we we'll go down sometimes for 20 or 30 days in nashville and you know it's it, it makes it that much harder to sing about you know what people call country and and when you live it every day and you do what we do every day when you know even if we're just touring through this 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 area up here 
you know, we may go do a sound check and grab our fishing pole and go hit the, the creek behind the, behind the stage. You know, we may take an hour ride over to find a brown trout somewhere. And, you know, we just do stuff like that. And then, uh, just the lyrics mean so much to us and we try to be, and we do, you know, I don't, we don't try, we do, we stay authentic to what we know and what we really live. And, you know, I, th I think there's a lot to that. I, we, we just have trouble singing about anything other than what we know and what we really do in real life. And it makes it a lot easier to go perform those songs, you know, when you put your heart in it and you know, you're, you're speaking the truth. I was going to say, you shared some, some pretty cool things on, on RFD and, and if folks, you get a chance to, to check that out, I, I recommend it. And, you know, on this album, you know, in addition to working with some great writers and, and stuff like that, you worked with some pretty cool musicians too and recording it. How cool was it to call in some of those guys and girls and be able to work with them? Yeah, that's that's what I was saying earlier. Those are our heroes on this record. We grew up just like everybody else, you know, listening to, to radio and uh, listening to these old records and to have these guys show up and, you know, put their heart in it. And they, it's, they're super hard, you know, to even get in these recording rooms. Some of the guys we got, they're very selective about, you know, who they, they go work with and who they who they put their their stamp of approval on. And it was just a big nod to us. And, a, you know, it's it's kind of a uh, makes you feel good knowing then some of the, the musicians when we've done with records, like, can we come tour with you when this is out? You know, we want we want to play those parts on stage, and that meant a lot to us. But and it's and it kind of happened, you know, it, it just kind of happened naturally and organically. Some of it we was we went in to record the first session, and our producer we'd never worked with uh, Ferg before, and you know we'd met him and hung out a little bit and kind of got to know each other, but we had never worked, you know, in a studio and in that in that environment. So we was kind of learning each other and seeing what everybody was capable of doing. So we went in and uh, he let us, he's, you know, a lot of times down there, they want to use a session band and uh, do things their way. And right out of the gates, he's like, we're using your band and we're going to cut this thing live and we're going to bring some guys to, you know, just add to this, not take away anything, just some utility kind of guys. And, that's what we did, man. We went in and set up the first song, No Click Track. And we're like, oh, man, how's this? You know, we're a live band. We're, we don't live in a studio every day like <laughs> some of these guys do. And so he was kind of testing us. And uh, the first song we we kicked off with, as soon as it was over, as soon as we hit the last note, and he's one of these guys that don't believe in taking very many takes. I think we only did two takes on the, the, first, the first track. And as soon as that last note rang out, I watched him pick his phone up, cell phone. He said, give me a minute, boys. He talked for a minute. He's like, these are West Virginia boys. I got them in here at old Cowboy Jack's recording studio, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, who is he talking to? He said, can you get over here now? He said, yeah, somebody on the other line. Uh, so I, I could hear him. And he, he said, I could probably bear in 20 or 30 minutes. He said, well, get over here in 20 or 30. We'll be waiting on you. And uh, he got off the phone. And he said, you don't mind if Tim O'Brien comes over and plays on this record, do you? <laughs> I was like, no. <laughs> I was like, bring. So that was kind of a really cool moment for us. Tim's a West Virginia guy. and We grew up listening to him. And 
we grew up around mountain stage, you know, and Tim's always doing something on mountain stage and just, just very respectful musicians and just good down to earth people too. So. Well, and then you, you got a, a big thing coming up here as well. I mean, the album is of course a big deal, but the day after that is probably an even bigger deal for, for y'all when not technically your Opry debut, but the first time you guys will be rocking out as, as just the Davidson brothers band on that stage. Yes, that is, uh, you know, as, as country guys and, country artists that growing up in these hills and hollers up here you know there's no we grew up you know in these areas there wasn't really a real music venue within two hours of us and it was just so hard to to go find your way and just nashville seemed just so far away and when you got down there you know there were just so many people trying to do what you's doing you get down there and just try to just hope to meet somebody and you know, damn well, you know, there's no record producers or label heads driving up here to West Virginia to find some band, some of these honky-tonks we grew up playing and shit. So it was just, you know, so distant from us growing up the Opry. And, you know, everybody's like, oh, you guys ought to be on the Opry. One of these days you're going to be on the Opry. And, you know, you say, yeah, hopefully. And you, in the back of your mind's like, there ain't no way in hell I'm ever making it to the Opry. You know, you're thinking, you know, out of these hills and hollers. We started getting a little older, you know, we started getting a little steam and selling out these places, you know, and started thinking, yeah, maybe that Opry ain't so far away, you know, and uh, and we got it in our mind that we was playing the Opry and there wasn't nobody going to stop us. And that was just one of our big goals growing up the whole time. You know, we, uh, we just, it would become a, it wasn't just a dream. It was a goal. We was going to get there and, we got the call back in 2019. I was out in Nevada, right on the Nevada, California state line in a place called uh, Carson Valley. We was out there. Uh, we played some shows out in that area. We were staying at this casino and resort. They have a big outdoor amphitheater. And, and uh, it's right at the bottom of Lake Tahoe. And we just getting ready to go up to Lake Tahoe that morning and it was cold. I remember it was snowing. The roads were bad. And I was, got all bundled up and just getting ready to walk out the door and my phone rang. It's like, man, it's Chris Jansen calling. It was, I think it was early that morning or something. We just super early for us out there, but we was three, two hours of different time zone from uh, Chris. And he said, where are you at? And I said, I'm in my hotel room. He said, good. Uh, I hope you're sitting down. I said, what do you mean? I thought he had some bad news or something. And uh, he said, well, I'm officially inviting you and your brother to perform on the Grand Ole Opry. And I think I dropped the phone. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> and it was just one of them moments, you know, just all the work and the, the blood and the sweat and the miles, you know. And finally, you know, somebody, it was just one of them, one of them moments that like, man, it was worth it. You know, it was all worth it. And, uh, we're finally here. And, you know, they say you never make it till you play the Grand Ole Opry. And, uh, a lot to that, and a lot of history, and a lot of people that cut paths to make, make what we do easier today. And, uh, we don't take it lightly, man. And, uh, then, uh, since 2019, you know, you always, you, you hope for that call back and COVID hit and shut everything down and just, everything was backed up we we had so much you know 
to make up these dates got canceled and this and that and the records you know our recordings were all getting pushed the writing and oh you can't put a record out now they're still backed up you can't get vinyl printed they're still backed up you know all these these setbacks from covid and and about a month and a half ago uh two months ago we was just you know getting out some of the promo for the the early setup on this record you got to go through months of setting up to release these records my manager called and uh, my brother and i were together and he said he called and he said can you put me on speakerphone with your brother and you and i said yeah and he said well you've been invited back to the grand Ole opera and it was the same feeling you know it never it, it was the same exact feeling when chris jansen called the first time it was just like man you know like it just tears you just you just, you just emotions come from you know just years and years and years of hard work and it's just a you know it's kind of just uh just let you know that what you're doing is working so i was gonna say i mean the for for y'all i mean you you've been at this for a long time whether that's just kind of playing with family i mean if you want to go all the way back to when you guys were really young but even as a group i mean over 20 years kind of together i mean that's a long journey and i think people always forget about that even some of the big boys have had those long journeys and, yes and it's it's is it weird to look back where you kind of were to where you are now and and kind of get this chance again it definitely is you know it's uh it's crazy to think that you know coming from nothing like we did and just barely had vehicles to to haul our equipment in at, at times you know and i remember having to beat up little subarus trying to shove guitars in them and now we got a brand new prevo tour bus and you know a sprinter van on top of that and we we get to do just amazing things and to, to think that you know where we come from that you know it's there's a lot of people, you know, up here, I, I say, either go in the coal mines or the oil and gas or uh, you work some little local job in a town. And that's 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 about all the opportunities are. And, you know, things have got a lot better up here. But when we grew up, you know, that was it. You know, a lot of the boys that we went to school with and stuff, they're still working in the coal mines. And that's a great life. But it wasn't for us, you know, and we, we fought through it and like everything you know there's your ups and downs and we hit some low points at times you know where we considered you know just just slowing down and doing doing it for fun around the state and you know but we never uh we never give up we never quit we uh we kept moving forward and i tell people we always went up the ladder we continued to climb and never went down and just kept our head down tried to outwork everybody and it's it's work for us so and we've done it all on our own a lot, you know, other than the, some help from a management company and some of our booking agents and stuff here in the last few years. But we've, uh, we never had the luxuries a lot of acts did with these big, powerful record labels and stuff. We, we kind of went out and earned it. And Charlie Daniels, we toured with him for, uh, for a long time. Uh, he took us under his wing and I think I, we did 40 straight dates or something in a couple months with Charlie and, I'll never forget one time he took us on the bus and he put his big gold belt buckle. He was getting dressed and he took that big old gold belt buckle off and slammed it down on the bus table in there and looked us in the eye and he said, you know how I got that? He said, no. He said, I sold a million records. He said, you know how I sold a million records? We said, no. He said, I stuck around and shook a million hands after my show. <laughs> <laughs> 
and he said, and I earned them fans. He said, nobody's taking that away from me. We, we, that stuck with us a long time. That's that's great advice. And that's, and you can definitely tell it in, in, in the, the work you guys have put out and the, this new record. I hope everyone gets a chance to, to check it out. And obviously we're still, you know, 2023, there's still a lot left of the year. What else is up y'all's sleeve and, and what can folks expect the rest of the year from y'all? Well, uh, Putting this record out, then we've got a very heavy tour schedule all over the world, actually, this year. And we're going to tour, you know, a lot of the eastern seaboard and doing some big, big, big music festivals. And then uh, we're looking forward to going back to Australia. And I think this is the first time I've publicly in, uh, talked about this, but we're about to confirm going back for a couple weeks to Australia and uh august for some some of their major music festivals as well then uh we're gonna come back and uh get started on the next record and uh we're also putting together our second annual uh music festival here in west virginia that's uh in the makings now we put it out the year before covid hit and uh it was an amazing success in morgantown west virginia and something we'd been trying to do our whole career is uh, start a music festival and all the COVID stuff, you know, we decided to back off from it for a while, but a lot of fans have been asking when it's coming back. And uh, we're hoping uh, for 2024 to bring back our music festival and, uh, and get it back up and running. So looking forward to that. I was going to say a lot, a lot, a lot to look forward to. And, and I mean, you guys, what only recorded, you know, wrote like a hundred songs in all yeah. those retreats. So you guys should be good to put out a couple albums, right? Yeah. Yeah. But you're never satisfied. Uh, what, what we did, you know, a couple months ago, I'm, I'm already thinking, you know, you should, we evolve so much and we get influenced so much. And, you know, I'm, I'm one of those guys that want to do what's fresh right now and what's going on in our life right now. So. So maybe another hundred will, will come out <laughs> here soon. <laughs> well, Chris, this has been a blast. I, I appreciate you taking the time. And like I said, folks, give the record a listen. I don't think you'll regret it at all. Well, thank you, man. Uh, salute. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Find more from Hops and Spirits at hopspirits.com. Thanks, everybody. Bye.